UFC 274 is in the books. There's no lightweight champion. There's a new strawweight champion. And there's a lot to talk about. It's Sunday, May the 8th. I am E. Spencer Kite. These are the next day takeaways. Welcome, everybody. We are post pay per view day. We are back on the pod. We are back to talk about everything that transpired last night in Phoenix, Arizona. And for the first time in the very brief history of this show, I'm bringing somebody in to talk about these things with me. One, because you guys are certainly sick of just hearing my voice and just hearing my ramblings. And two, I think he's one of the smartest up and coming minds in this sport. He is a good friend very quickly. He is severe of a maze. Harry Powell, good sir. Thank you for spending your Sunday, part of your Sunday with me. How are you? Firstly, thank you very much for the words. I appreciate that. Um, I, you know, I won't make this uh, the same loving as we had at the preview, but you know, I, I've said to you offline the importance of this relationship so far, and 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 the importance of your mentorship. Um, equally, the importance of of me being able to to, to work for Spirit and May. It's a real pleasure. So, thank you very much for inviting me. I am well. I am ready to talk about the very strange card that was last night. Um, where would you like to start, sir? It was a very strange card last night that uh, you and I continued to discuss as it was happening, as you were dealing with very early mornings, which I can't understand how you and the rest of you lot deal with it all the time. We'll start at the top. Charles Oliveira, no longer lightweight champion officially, very much lightweight champion, kind of uncrowned king, goes out, kind of does what he's done his last couple of fights, deals with adversity, gets dropped, gets hurt, gets cut up, gets bloody, and says, I don't care, and just goes forward and gets a finish. Watching the fight, what were your instant takeaways? What were your instant thoughts on that three minutes and change of utter chaos? I think my first takeaway was that Gaethje's relapsed. Um, something that we, you know, there was a, there was a big deal made uh, when Justin Gaethje and Trevor Whitman had a conversation after, I think it was the lost uh, Poirier or the last, uh, or Eddie Alvarez, I can't remember specifically, but there was a conversation had where uh, he said, I want to be a world champion. I don't just want to be an entertaining fighter anymore. I want to be a world champion. And Trevor said, you can absolutely do that, but you cannot do it with the current style that you have. And what I thought when we saw him against Tony Ferguson was that he was going to be able to realize that potential. He looked fantastic. He was moving well. He was striking well. His head movement was fantastic. This fight was not that. It was anything but that. Um, my initial thoughts on Charles Oliveira was the same. He seems like a man that needs to take a smack to, to wake up a little bit. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that if you're able to, to stay in. And what I wrote in my, um, in my article was he went down to, f to, the, to the fire and brimstone house that Justin Gaethje has, and he met volcanic heat with nuclear fusion right? That's what he did. He was able to, uh, to to stay in the pocket long enough to land damaging shots on Gaethje. And I think Gaethje was shocked at the power of Oliveira. It felt as though Gaethje was sort of, you know, reeling away from the pocket after some of the exchanges, which is something that I think we're going to need to talk about a little bit more 
Um, maybe his chin is starting to give up the ghost. Maybe at the elite level against the elitist fighters there are, the bangs just hit different. Um, or as I said, maybe the style just catches up on him. But, you know, finally, um, you know, I'll, I'll throw it back. I don't want to just you know, ruin the whole segment by just talking the whole time. Is, uh, is that, look, if, if Charles Oliveira has you hurt and your back touches the canvas, it's a tough old day. It's a you, tough you guys day. can't see it. We're both shaking our heads like, man, it's just it's just trouble because it is. And there's a lot that you said there that I, I want to dive into. I, I think you are correct in that Justin Gaethje has regressed from that moment where he said, I want to be a world champion. And he he clearly altered his approach in the Tony Ferguson fight. It wasn't just a gunfight. It was a gunfight where the other guy brought a knife and he absolutely devastated Tony Ferguson. And we've seen, we'll get to Tony Ferguson. We've seen the impact of that. And you posited something that I wrote about in 10 things that, that there may be a little bit of a, a post gagey hangover effect that we're seeing with some of these guys. And now I think we're also, as you said, seeing it with gagey that after all of these wars, after all of these battles, it's starting to catch up to it because those shots. And, and the other part of that, that I want to get, your thoughts on that. I saw a couple of people kind of touching on a little bit instantly Saturday night was if we underrated, maybe undervalued Charles Oliveira's striking because he is touching up elite fighters with his hands. He is, I mean, Michael Chandler was, was a knockout, was a, was a TKO by strikes. He hurt Dustin Poirier before diving on the, on the finish. He hurt Justin Gaethje, dropped him, dropped him with a beautiful right hand, took the leg kick and just said, here, take this instead, and then dives on the finish. Have we made so much of his submission prowess, which is phenomenal, and his submission record, which is the best in the UFC, at the expense of acknowledging what a terrific and varied striker he is and how much of an impact that has on his performances? Uh, historically, no, I don't think so. Um, I think that again, Oliveira is a fighter that has gone through sort of epochs of evolution, right? He's grown, he's risen, he's faded, he's risen, he's faded, he's risen. He's made cognizant decisions to embody himself or represent himself as the fighter he is today. He's quite clearly improved his striking. In terms of have we underrated his striking, I think my question back is underrating his striking how or by what measure, right? Is it, is it underrated his striking in the overall pantheon of MMA striking? Or is it have we underrated his ability to use his striking to take fights to where he is most dominant? I think it's the, the latter of those two. We, we focus and we fixate so much on how dangerous he is the minute he gets a hold of you, the minute you're on the ground and in jeopardy, that we don't spend enough time talking about the ways that he gets you there, which is more often than not all of these different strikes. And we saw it, I think, in that, in that fight with Gaethje as we have in the, in the fights beforehand. 
he's hitting you with various things. It's not just, and I think that was a big part of, of last night. It's not just for Gaethje, the leg kick, and then the big power shots. It's the calf kick. It's the teep up the middle. It's the right hand. It's the knees. It's the flying knees. That it puts you in such a position that you have to worry about more than you do if you're Charles Oliveira and what's coming back at you. And yet the way it always ends is with a submission or, or almost always ends is with some kind of choke with somebody going to sleep or tapping. And so we fixate kind of just on the actual finish that we don't talk about the various weapons and the diverse weapons that he brings to the cage to set up those finishes. Yeah. I think, I actually think that the, the, the striking success doesn't come from, it doesn't primarily come from the evolu- the pure evolution of his striking. I think where it comes from is getting to a point in your career, and we saw it similarly with Habib, where he just implicitly trusts the ground game so much whether that be he lands on his back, he can't get up, he's going to submit somebody. He lands on his back, he can't get up, he's going to sweep somebody. He lands on his back, can't get up, he's going to land enough damage for them to disengage. Or he's just going to be able to get back up. He trusts those scenarios so implicitly that he can go out and then be confident enough to throw his hands and his knees and you know the various six other limbs that he has. Now, my my thought, which I talked about in 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 the preview show, and happened, and I'm glad it happened, is Gaethje made a very intelligent decision that when he dropped Oliveira, and actually I think the second one, I think Oliveira pulled guard more than he uh, Gaethje dropped him for a break rather than for anything else was that he didn't engage. But that, for Charles Oliveira, is also a very interesting dynamic, right? On the flip side, it's a very smart decision for Justin Gaethje. You drop him, why bother going down when you could when you could tell the ref, stand him up, fine. If that's an option, do it. For Charles Oliveira, he can get dropped, in inverted commas, and just take a breather for five seconds. Gather his thoughts, get himself back together and get back up and fight again. I think the dynamic of the danger of, of, of what he poses on the ground is a super weapon for Charles Oliveira. That point about him getting dropped and Gaethje not diving in, which, as you said, you brought up on, on Saturday's Severe MMA preview show, played out a couple of times in that fight. We saw even when Oliveira full-on pulled guard, jumped guard, Justin Gaethje, Hits the, hits the mat, his knees hit the canvas, and he instantly looks at Charles Oliveira like, no, man, I'm out. We're not, we're not doing this. We're not playing here. It was the one moment or one of the few moments for the comms on Saturday where they nailed it, where they, where they said the right thing because Daniel Cormier said, look, it makes sense. I fully understand why Justin Gaethje isn't going to the ground with this guy. We know how dangerous he is, but made your second point there of Charles Oliveira gets five or 10 seconds to just gather himself and get himself up and start the attack again. And it is such a weapon. It is such a dynamic that so many of these athletes don't have. Most of these fights or lots of these fights 
are finished on the ground by somebody coming down and chasing a hurt fighter. You cannot do that with Charles Oliveira. We've seen it. We've talked about it, you and I, and, and the severe crew with Paul Craig. You just can't be there with him because it is, even in that finishing sequence where Charles, Charles Oliveira gets very high to start, is looking for is looking for a choke, it's not there. Looks and switches to the triangle, it's not there, and Gaethje's able to kind of wriggle free. Charles is right on his back right away and under the neck instantly. It's just the jeopardy that you're in being there with him. And that that creates those moments where you have no choice but to stand with a guy that is now proving he can take your best shots and get up and come and hurt you. And I think if there were any questions, and I all caps tweeted it out last night, question his heart now, right? Justin Gaethje went into this fight and said, once a coward, always a coward. I'm going to test his heart. I'm going to, I'm going to see if it's still in there. We can't say it anymore. It, it can't be mentioned anymore. Yes, it was a, a part of his past, but it is in the past and it is dead and buried now because there's there's no questioning this man at this point. I think, I mean, I'm going to turn the question slightly on Gaethje. This is, this is insane for me to say, given that, you know, on a Sunday morning, I'm sat here after having a sleep and I'm not a fighter at all. I haven't taken any blows to the head. But I'd question Justin Gaethje's mentality because you turned such a corner and genuinely looks like a world beater against Tony Ferguson. Now, look, have your opinions about Tony Ferguson. I think personally, Tony Ferguson proved a lot in that first round against Michael Chandler about sort of where he is and, and where his skill set still lies in that division. But to go from the Tony Ferguson performance to having the performance against Habib. Now, everyone can get a buy against Habib. These things happen in MMA. But to then go out against Charles Oliveira and perform the way that you did, going back to the roots of your fighting, the fibers of your fighting, I question where Justin Gaethje's mentality is. Is he still the same fighter? Is he is he the one that has a little bit of that something in his heart? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know is the answer. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think it's a very valid question. I think you can even go back before this, the, the Michael Chandler fight, right? It was It was a different performance than we saw in the Ferguson fight. It was back to that brawling mentality. It was back to that try to kill him mentality that he kind of abandoned for a little bit or, or did away with. He listened, listened to Trevor Whitman and took 10% off and, and looked like a killer for a while. Moving it forward, spinning it forward, as this is the takeaways and, and kind of a talk about what's next. There was obviously the instant, all right, who, who gets the next shot? And, and I loved Charles Oliveira jumping over the cage and, and telling Dana White, I'm the champion, where's my belt? And Dana having to on on the show on the broadcast say, "No, you, you missed weight. You're the number one contender." All right, fine. Then give me somebody. Who's who's the right? Who is the correct somebody? And who will be the somebody if those two things are different? I think it's obvious, really. I think the the right one is Islam Makachev. Who is the one? It's Conor McGregor, <laughs> right? Like we're. We're Connor has all of the options, right? In the post fight, in, in, in his post fight speech, in the cage, Charlie Olives calls out Connor McGregor. 
Michael Chandler calls out Conor McGregor. Usman's mentioning Conor McGregor here, there, and everywhere, right? Everyone, like still to this day, when Conor stood there, sat there in the press conference and said to RDA, anyone takes this fight. You can have the title fight, but anyone takes this fight. He wasn't wrong then, and he isn't wrong now. Anyone takes the Conor McGregor fight. If I'm Conor McGregor, the title fight is the only way to go, right? The Gaethje fight will be there. I think he, if, if we see, there's a longer conversation to be had and, and maybe it's not the place to have it right now. But if I'm Conor McGregor, I'm looking at Justin Gaethje in a very different way after last night. Uh, if I'm Conor McGregor, I'm looking at Michael Chandler in a very different way. If I'm Conor McGregor, I think the hardest fight in that division that's going to get you the biggest marbles is Charles Oliveira. Yeah, and the thing with that, and I think everybody, I, I, would, I would hope everybody can see it or, or can recognize it, is that there is no way that ultra-confident Conor McGregor doesn't see those moments when Charles Oliveira is hurt and think, I can do that. And if I do that, he's not getting up. Because the one thing we know about Conor is, is he just, he feels he's on a different level when it comes to some of this stuff. The interesting thing to me, and, and we'll move on from this fight with this, is that I think it's going to be really curious to see if Connor wants to go from walking around as he is right now, looking like an absolute gorilla, to going down and fighting at 55, which he's done in the past, certainly, and is capable of, but he hasn't done it recently. And so with those options, with those choices available to him, I'm interested to see what he ends up deciding because it will be his choice. It will just be up to him. He gets to pick the name. He gets to decide where he's going and, and we'll see what happens there. We shift now to this co-main event where Carlos Barza wins a split decision over Rose Nami Yunus to claim the strawweight title, become the second two-time champion in the division. Um, achieve what she told me she wanted to achieve when we spoke before the fight, cement her legacy, ensure her place in the Hall of Fame. I don't know that this fight necessarily did it. I told her then, as I will tell you now, I think her place was established by being the first champion. It, it gets you in. It just does. It's one of those things. I don't care about Hall of Fames anyways, all that much. What I want to talk to you about, and we talked about it last night, was kind of the, the reaction to this fight and the discussion around this fight, because you and I, being nerds that we are, being caring about things that most people maybe don't care about or, or necessarily want to see, quite enjoyed the dynamics of that fight. Now, neither of us are going to sit here on this podcast and try to argue with anybody that it was a exciting fight or a wildly entertaining fight but it was a, a tactical battle that you and I enjoyed. What were your thoughts watching it? I don't, I don't even necessarily care how you scored it, but what were your thoughts watching that fight on how it played out and maybe what could have, could have changed on either side to make it a little more palatable to the masses? So... I'll start by saying two things. The first thing is these fighters have absolutely zero obligation to make fights interesting. 
what they have an obligation to do is win. However they win is how they win. Uh, obviously, there are repercussions to those decisions in terms of fanfare and whatever. But if a title is on the line, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Tyron Woodley spoke about this, where he said, I don't care if I'm in 15 boring fights. If I keep the title, I get the most amount of money possible. Um, and I think that's where the, the, the fighters have slight leverage over the UFC is if they win the belt, yeah, the UFC can matchmake them harshly for the belt. But if they won the belt, they're probably a decent fighter, right? So, you know, um, yeah. My, my main takeaways from the fight were I, I, was, I was pretty riveted by the first two rounds, to be honest. I thought it was really interesting to watch Rose make reads, to make Carla try and make counter reads, to try and find her way to, to get in. I thought Rose's ability to defend the takedown was fantastic. Um, and I could see there being a game plan where she'd be happy to drop a round. She'd be happy to drop maybe two knowing that she'd got the reads in the bank and that she was going to turn the gas tank up and really, really take it to Carla. I was disappointed with the, the last three rounds. All respect to Carla. She went in there. She did what she had to do. But nobody won that fight one. And second of all, uh, Rose was clearly the superior fighter skill for skill. And for whatever reason didn't pull the trigger. There is an argument to be made as to whether she has any idea how the fights are scored. She comes out of the fight talking about, do I not get points for being defensively sound? No, is the answer. Um, now, how did I score the fight? I have no idea. To be honest, I don't score fights. I don't score fights because I'm not very good at it. I, I defer to yourself. Or I defer to Sean. Uh, I'm, I, I ask him, and I ask you questions of why you scored fights like that. Now, look, there are very easy rounds to score, right? If one man beats the fuck out of another man, I'm like, I think that guy won, right? But but fights like Rose and Carla, I'm looking at fights from an analysis point of view. I'm watching fights to be like, why does X or Y happen? I can't do both at the moment. Um, so I don't know how I scored the fight is the honest answer. Um, but my main reactions were generally just disappointment from Rose's uh, round three, four, and five performance. That was sort of the same thing I felt, and, and you and I, as as I said, were, were communicating throughout the event. And I think we both had moments where those first couple takedowns happened or, or attempted to happen, and Rose defended well, and we both kind of lit up knowing that that was an important piece of things. I, like you, thought that once she showed she could defend the shots and also get herself free if Carla was in deeper or secured, you know, a, a partial takedown or, or a very quick takedown, that we would see her be more aggressive, that we would see her recognize and say, I can, I can deal with whatever she brings to the table. I can deal with her in her best spots or in advantageous positions so I can just go. I was quite alarmed by the way things happened in between each round, in that I did not expect for Rose to go back, and I wrote about this in the takeaways in, in 10 Things, to go back and, and have every round be followed by kind of just grand praise, and that everything is going well, and you're in a fight like that where very little is happening. And Trevor Whitman, 
had a few times where he said, we need to be more aggressive. Everything's going well. We need to be more aggressive. And Pat Barry just said, you're, 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 you're winning. Everything's great. You're doing everything right. And I saw Eric Nixick last night tweet that he felt that Pat Barry coached that as a spouse and not as a coach. And that's maybe where you let Trevor step in. And I wonder if that's a part of it. I wonder if that's right. Because Trevor has been the lead voice many, many times. Pat was the lead voice last night. And I wonder if that changes things for Rose in a fight like that, where, as you said, I, I don't think anybody would argue that she is the superior fighter. She didn't win on Saturday night, according to the judges, according to many people scoring the fight at home, according to the official rule, according to the official list of results. But I don't think anybody looks at those two and says, Rose Nami Yunus is, is the inferior fighter. She's the better athlete. She has the more weapons. And she didn't use them on Saturday. Do you think there's any, I guess, validity or interest to you in kind of hearing from those coaches and hearing from, from Rose about the way that cornering went in terms of her decision-making? Absolutely. I'd love to hear from Rose and the corner. Is there, is there any validity in... Um, in Pat being the lead voice or not, I don't know, is the answer. That's a variable that's really, really difficult to measure. Um, and I'm not going to try. I echo your concerns, however. In the first round, she went back and they were like, this is great. This is fine. You're not getting taken down. Everything's good. I, I hear that. I hear that very loud. Like the last thing you want in a five round fight is for Carla to get her eye in. And, and, and start the groove of getting her takedowns and chaining her, her wrestling together. That's the last thing you want. Um, and she didn't do that. So fantastic. Uh, that, that's, that's, that's a great round. Second round, when they came back, I remember Whitman saying, okay, on every third feint, throw a jab or throw something. Fine. And I think Rose did that once or twice at the start of the second and then fell back into the pattern of the first. The third, he was like, you know, he upped the ante a little bit and said, oh, we need, yeah, we need pressure now. Really pressure her, start to pressure her. She has nothing for you. And by the end of it, he was telling her, you're the greatest martial artist in the world. And to me, the way that I read that was, you need to fucking do something. Like, right. it's a way of saying to Rose in the nicest way possible to get through to a character like Rose is, be confident in who you are. You actually have to go out and win this fight, by the way. Um, and she didn't, you know, she absolutely didn't. There were moments, there were so many moments that she would stuff a takedown or she would uh, disengage from the clinch and just throw nothing. You know, we look at somebody like Leon Edwards, uh, especially in this fight against Gunnar Nelson, where he sort of, you know, this was always a thing, but he brought to the fore in, in a very, very explicit manner, you exit from the clinch and you throw a big shot. And what does it do? Well, all of a sudden, Gunny Nelson's got a hematoma above his eye and the, the fight starts spiraling out of control, right? These transitionary moments are places where Rose generally has done very, very well, um, but just didn't. And I have, I, I really can't fathom as to why she didn't. 
it was obvious that she was stuffing the takedown well, or when she was being taken down, there was very little control time. She was either getting whizzes, getting underhooks, getting inside space, and forcing Carla to scramble, and then doing the right thing and not engaging in the scramble, just getting out, getting space. Fine, perfect, no problem. But you've proved to yourself that you are, are the superior fighter. Why are you not then taking the fight? I don't, I don't understand. Yeah, it, it was difficult to process. It was difficult to reconcile, really, in watching it. And for me, and, and I feel bad that we haven't spoken about Carla because she comes away with the belt. But I think the fact that we're speaking about it this way highlights kind of how the fight went. And it's, it's not to take anything away from Carla, who did enough of what she had to do to get the victory. She has the belt. We will go forward with her and we will touch on that in a moment. I'm super curious to see Rose Namajunas's next fight, when it is, who it is against, and how she performs. Because a fight like this and a result like this where you are questioning everything and being questioned about everything can have a way to mess with you, can have a way to fuck with your head, especially if you're someone that is already in your head quite a lot, as we know Rose is. And then on the other side of it, we saw Dana White come out afterwards and say, we're going to look at that rematch between Yoana Yenjechik and Zhang Weili as a number one contender fight. And I'm sitting here screaming last night, where the fuck is Marina Rodriguez? Who already battled Carlos Barza to a split decision that I thought she won by doing enough off her back in the third round with elbows and, and being defensive and, and forcing Carla to do nothing, giving Carla no opportunity to do anything. And I wonder if that's a better direction to go rather than just running through these same sets of contenders and these same sets of former champions where Marina Rodriguez is then going to get the, you know, Islam Makachev, Tony Ferguson tract of, we need you, even really the Carla Esparza tract of, we need you to just keep winning fights and sticking around up here until we're ready to give you a shot. Yeah, look, I don't know what the answer is. I agree with you that fresh blood is needed. We've gone through, and I also agree, that's not the way that Carla would have wanted to win that title. You know, she was happy in the moment for a multitude of reasons. You know, she's won, quote unquote, the fight, but she has the belt wrapped around her waist. And I think that's really what means everything. Not just because she'll be on championship money next time. She's getting married next week. Congratulations to her, by the way. Like. You know, the, the, uh, the, the pinnacle of the sport is still the pinnacle of the sport. Regardless of how you win it, winning the belt is winning the belt, right? And do I pick Carla Esparza in a rematch with Yoni and Jacek? No, I don't. Do I pick Carla Esparza against Yang Wei Li? No, I don't. What do we do with Rose Namajunas now? I have no idea. Do we see... I mean, what I wonder... I wonder, Dana is a very cynical character at times. And what I wonder is, does he want to deal with the headache that is Rose? What I mean by headache is she's not the fighter that will just turn up and be like, I'll fight that guy. She's not a Michael Chandler. She's a, she's a fighter that has nuance and she has complexity. 
do we see Dana White give Rosanama Yunus Tatiana Suarez and just be like, let's see how this goes? I mean, I've been waiting for the return of Tatiana Suarez for as long as she's been out. Um, I would, I would welcome that. I would welcome that fight. I think you're correct in the like assessment that that Rose isn't necessarily the person or champion or fighter that the UFC was hoping she was all the way back on the Ultimate Fighter. They thought we've got the next Ronda Rousey here, this dynamic finisher, this personality that is just ice cold and going to go out there. And that's not who she is. It's who she is when she's in the cage in terms of her demeanor, but it's not who she is in terms of mindset. As you said, Michael Chandler, she is not. So this is going to be one. And this division is going to be one that is very, very interesting over the second half of this year, as we get some of these other fights coming together, as we figure out what comes next for those, these two competitors comes next for us is Michael Chandler and Tony Ferguson, the swing bout of the pay-per-view, the fight that I think everybody going into it was worried was going to make them sad, ultimately ended in a way that made a lot of us sad and a lot of us worried. But you said something earlier about Tony Ferguson's performance in the first round, and I wonder if you could just kind of go back to that and touch on your thoughts from that first five minutes and what it makes you think about Tony Ferguson's potential future in the octagon. So I don't think it changes my thoughts on a potential future for Tony Ferguson, um, at least not in elite level competition. But I expected Chandler to come out in the same way he did. He's extremely athletic. He covers distance very, very well. He has a very low stance. And, and when he hits hard, he hits with his straight shots. He came out and, and tried to get close to Tony. But Tony did a, just, just did a great job of mixing up the footwork and switching his stances and, and sometimes being square and sometimes being slanted and just not really giving Chandler looks that a conventional fighter will give. And I mean, look, that's Tony Ferguson 101, right? He's not a conventional fighter. But, but I, I expected Chandler to make reads and still go out there and try to land shots regardless of the unorthodox approach that Tony Ferguson has. Now, the, I think there is a question over Michael Chandler coming out of that fight, and and I'll, I'll, I'll touch on that a sec in a second. But I was really impressed with how Ferguson stood his ground when Chandler was advancing. He didn't force himself back. He didn't concede uh, range and space, and he looked for counters in the chaos. Right, and he landed two really beautiful left hands: one a hook, one a straight. Uh, the moment that the, the first left straight landed, uh, I, I said to you, Chandler's just broken his nose. Um, and I'm, I'm confident he did because one, it looked different after the shot. And two, Chandler was immediately affected by that shot. Um, in the words of Shawnee Podcasts, immediately impactful strikes. So yeah, I, I was impressed by Ferguson's focus, by how much he was in the fight by his ability to land counters in the chaos. And look, you know, Chandler took him down, fine. I think that says more about what Tony was doing on the feet than it does uh, about Tony's takedown defense. And, you know, in the close guard, nothing really happened. You know, a bit of, a bit of ground and pound from Chandler, a bit of slapping, a bit of punching from Tony Ferguson, fine. Nothing crazy to write home about. But I was overall impressed 
with how Tony Ferguson looked in the first five minutes in comparison to, say, the Gaethje fight or the fact that he was already riding a three-fight losing streak. So I want to jump on the the takedown there first for people that are listening. Um, it is such an important it is such an important point that Harry just made that, that I need people to understand. And this was drilled into me years ago when I sat in a conference room at a hotel and casino in Vancouver, listening to John McCarthy, tell me about fights, teach me about judging and scoring fights. The reason Michael Chandler goes for that takedown is because things on the feet are not going how he wants. It is not about, I want to wrestle. It is about, I do not want to get punched in the fucking face anymore. And that doesn't score you points. It doesn't, it is changing the dynamic of the fight to preserve himself. It is the the reason he is shooting that shot. And it's a lovely shot, beautiful takedown, absolutely effective in terms of changing the dynamic of the fight, but it doesn't do anything for him in terms of scoring and judging. And I, I want more people to learn those things. Go watch Sean's video, Sean Sheehan on YouTube. Find his, find his Twitter at Sean Sheehan BA. Don't follow him. He doesn't watch too, but watch the video anyways. Read, read the criteria. It's 3.5 pages long, as Sean says, every event. Can't believe you don't read them. Go read them, because that's what that takedown was. That was, get me out of this trouble. I don't want to take any more shots. The other piece to the, to the first part of that, to the first part of our, our question and, and talk about Tony Ferguson here is, I watched it and I thought, here's a guy that's 38 that clearly still wants to compete that still has something to offer, but he just needs to have, as we talked about on the preview show, the Jim Miller understanding, the Andre Arlovsky understanding of I can't do it against these elite guys anymore. I just can't be in there with a, with a brute like Michael Chandler, with an elite grappler like Charles Oliveira or Benil Dariush, because these guys are just that much quicker, that much sharper, that much more durable still. But if Tony Ferguson still wants to compete, and Dana White said afterwards that, you know, if Tony still wants to be out here, absolutely have him because he thought he looked great in that first five minutes. And I thought he looked good. I don't think he looked great. He looked better than he had. But if he wants to keep doing it, I think it's just a matter of we got to go backwards in the division. And maybe that means he becomes the guy that is the gatekeeper to the top 10 or the top 15. And we see how that next one goes and we make those decisions. I don't think there's any need to hurry him back to the cage because that was a, well, we'll get to that. Let's, let's get to that now. You and I both said, pump the brakes on greatest front kick finish ever because Anderson Silva kicking Vitor Belfort in the face is a thing that happened. Captured beautifully, I may add, by my guy, James Law, back in the heavy MMA days. But it was a hellacious front kick to the face. And I'm sorry that Twitter and I spoiled it for you because you were a little bit behind. Your reaction when it landed was what, sir? Sadness is the honest answer. Um, I think the card wasn't great, but that just destroyed the card for me. Uh, I expected it to be uh, a rough fight for Tony Ferguson, but we have never seen Tony Ferguson go out like that. We've never seen him 
down for so long. And I think the thing that really drove it home for me was the medical team uh, rolled Tony over from his front to his back. I suspect to like help him breathe and shit, you know, make sure he's not swallowed his own tongue or whatever. Um, and the camera panned over the cage and you just see the panic and the confusion and the vulnerability of Tony Ferguson. As you mentioned, 38 year old man, a man that was riding an 11 fight win streak in the toughest division in the UFC reduced to panic and vulnerability and confusion. And that it's a sombering, it's a sombering thing to see a man that was held in such high regard historically, both in, 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 in my you know, fighting lexicon, but really anyone that's watched him for a significant amount of time uh, reduced to that. But I think it's also, it speaks to me about the fragile nature of fighters at the end of their tenure. I think what we saw in that fight was a, a result of the Justin Gaethje effect for both men. And there's something probably to say about Michael Chandler after this. But I never want to see Tony Ferguson go out like that again. And for that reason, I'm not sure I want to see Tony Ferguson walk into the cage again. Um, but please, for anyone listening to this, understand what happened to Tony Ferguson in that moment. A, a kick with all of Michael Chandler's, I don't know what he probably was on the night, 168, 170 pounds worth of force, traveled upwards, directly under the chin, and rattled Tony Ferguson's brain so viciously that his body decided that to protect itself from imminent death, it just stiffened up and collapsed. Whatever the CT scan says in the hospital after the fight, I don't care. The damage that will have been done to Tony Ferguson's longevity is a variable that we are yet to understand. And that should be even more scary to you than if we did understand it. Tony Ferguson took a loss and a knockout that is more brutal than we have seen in a long time. And I think it should remind you of just how dangerous this sport can be for some of the people that we no love choose to fucking hate on because he tripped over a wire this is a sport that the only people that lose are the fighters that is extremely well said extremely extremely poignant um there is a lot that you and i could sit and talk about and we're probably truth be told we're probably going to need to sit down and do this pretty regularly you and i because i love these conversations i know you have an out here today you have some plans so i don't want to keep you too long so we're going to jump forward into some of these other fights and just kind of speed through some stuff you have a story coming out a spotlight piece coming out on brandon royville who earned fight of the night honors as correctly predicted by yours truly on the Severe MMA preview show for his performance against Matt Schnell. Tell me why Brandon Royville is the focus of your spotlight 
and why you love Brandon Royville so much. It's just a fucking crazy man, isn't he? You know, like there's not much more I could say. I think the thing, look, uh, Brandon Royville is is probably not going to win a title in the UFC. Uh, he's probably not because he's too wild, right? Uh, he he walks into the pocket with his chin staring at the sky, right? Like, you know, he uh, it looks like a spaceship taking off. He's it's it's just nowhere to be seen. Like, it's like he's got a neck tattoo and he wants you to see it. Like, it's just all over the place. Uh, and his shots are awkward and they're not at a great angle. And he's firing over straight shots and that's never a great place to be. And his kicks are so fucking wild that he's always off balance all the time. And it's just a nightmare from a a pure technical standpoint. But by lord, is it fun? right? It's a lot of fucking fun. And please understand that I do know how hypocritical I sound from just going on a soliloquy of the damage that Tony Ferguson has taken <laughs> to now telling you that Brandon Royval taking damage is fun. But it is. I can't, I can't get away from it. It is fun because he's willingly going and he's willingly taking the damage to be able to out chaos his, his, his opponent. And that's what he did with Matt Schnell, right? He got dropped immediately from getting dropped, he's looking at leg attacks. He's looking at Omar Platters and Goga Platters and transferring back to leg attacks from K-Guard. He's scrambling and he's all over here and he's there and he's all over the gaff. And then all of a sudden he runs into a fucking guillotine and then you see his actual technical proficiency to switch that position from being on bottom in a mounted guillotine, which is probably the worst fucking place to get guillotined, let's be honest, to then reversing it, being in a lateral top side control with no pressure of a guillotine, forcing Matt Schnell to scramble. And what does he do? He fucking guillotines him back. Like, come on, son. He's a wild you guys, man. You guys can't see it, but the joy in Harry right now as he's talking about this. Oh, I, th- I think we're going to have to start doing some video, video podcasts of Harry just geeking out about grappling and about jiu-jitsu. You mentioned it here. We mentioned it on the previous show. We talked about it live on, on WhatsApp during the fight. The Brandon Royville, as you said, is a guy that probably doesn't win a title, maybe contends for one, maybe challenges for one at some point because of the way the division shakes out, has a win over Kai Kara France, as he said in his post-fight, but is a guy that is going to be right there in the thick of it and thoroughly entertaining every time. Perfect example of a guy that we just, you know, need to appreciate more, need to Sing the praises of more. He's now had six fights in the UFC. They're all against top 10 opponents. He's four and two. One of the losses is to Brandon Moreno when he dislocates his shoulder to the point that it needs serious surgery. And his coach, Mark Montoya, has to grizzly pop it back into place. And if you haven't seen the video, there, there just happens to be an angle where it looks like Mark Montoya is staring directly in the camera. Like, hey, watch this. Watch what I'm going to do. Just grim. But a terrific performance. Go and read Harry's spotlight on Brandon Royville on SevereMMA.com. It was a terrific performance. Another kind of, to go to go back to the expected performances or expected outcomes of the Chandler-Ferguson fight, expected outcome, Andre Fialo, Cameron Van Camp. We thought it was going to be a squash match. We thought it was a setup for a showcase for Andre Fialo. How good is this man and how far can he go in your estimation after seeing him for three fights in, in five months in the UFC? I don't know. I really don't know. I, I, I don't like to, I don't, I mean, look, I've done it with a couple of fighters. Shavkat Rachmanov, 
I'm all the way on the train. I was on the train from the first time I fucking saw him, right? I saw him and I was like, yeah, he'll do. I'll have him. <laughs> yeah, you can, in my back pocket. Come on, we're going. Um, for somebody like Fialo, I, I just don't know. I don't think we've seen enough. The first round against Michel Pereira, he looked fantastic. But that was also Michel Pereira that decided not to be a wild man, right? That decided to conserve his energy, that decided to, to try and fight in a little bit more strategic and a little bit more stable manner. The Bieza fight, you know, we've, all of us, I, I had a very, I was very high on Fialo for the fight with Bieza. Shawnee, Ian, and I can't remember where you stood in it, but, but were very high on Bieza. Um, and he, he comes out with a win, but he took some shots, right? In this fight with Van Camp, it should have been a walkover, but it kind of wasn't, right? Like it was a walkover in the sense that he saw the left hook early. He warned Van Camp with it. Van Camp was like, oh, it, everything is fine. And then just gets whacked with it. But, but Van Camp landed some shots, right? He touched Fiala. Hit him, hit him with a couple. Right. And, you know, I tweeted out uh, early in the Fialo fight. I said, if you haven't seen it before, understand that this guy models himself on Conor McGregor and now you can't unsee it, right? But the difference with the way that Fialo moves is he actually does get clipped, right? right. Prime McGregor was able to move in and out of range literally without getting touched. Or if he was getting touched, he was on the way out. So the strike was as least, least impactful as possible. Fialo got touched a little bit against a guy that is not UFC caliber. So do we think he rises up the division? Maybe, maybe, you know, he's had three wins and he, he lost to Pereira, right? Lost to Pereira. Right. Two and one now. Right. Thank you. Two wins, one loss in the UFC in a short space of time is fine. You know, he's doing fine. Let's see what his trajectory is. Let's see what his next matchup is. I know that he, he wants to be on the, the next card. Uh, he spoke to Dana White and Dana said, oh yeah, it's fine. Dates are sorted. Let's see who they give him for that. Uh, maybe it's Francisco Trinaldo if he wants a quick turnaround. I doubt it. But, you know, is it somebody... Yeah, let's see. I, I need to see more from Fiala is the answer. Yeah. First, I love that your answer is I don't know. I really do. It's it's a thing we don't say enough. It's a thing sports punditry in general could do with more of. I don't know the actual answer. I want to see it. You and I talk about it all the time. I write about it every Wednesday. My whole being about this sport is I have questions. I want answers. And then I want to test that hypothesis more. And I want to test that hypothesis every single time out. I hope he gets a step up in competition because this felt like a step backwards. And yet there were still, as you said, moments where Cameron Van Camp touched him. And we were like, oh, interesting. He, he kind of stiffened up a little bit there. So as he gets into deeper waters, as he gets into maybe Randy Brown, if Randy Brown wants to make a quick turnaround off this card, Chaos Williams even, if Chaos Williams wants to make a quick turnaround off this card, a guy with power that if Fiala lets him get touched, lets himself get touched, it could be disastrous. But definitely a good win and definitely something to pay attention to kind of going forward. One other person that I wanted to touch on here before we, before we get done Lupita Godinez, Lupi Godinez, trains out here close to me, about 45 minutes away at Titan MMA in Vancouver. Just a dominant effort, just a, a wonderful performance to me showcasing that she is somebody to keep close eye on in this division where grappling is at a premium, 
where top control and power and doing damage from those positions are at a premium. And somebody who looks like she is growing by leaps and bounds in between each and every fight. Absolutely. Look, I think the thing that I've talked about this before on, on other podcasts, and I'll say it again here, is that the thing that to me shows the greatest trajectory of your potential as an MMA fighter is your ability to meld transitionary phases of fighting together. How well can you go from out of range striking to in range striking, from out of range striking to clinch, to out of range striking or in range striking, to grappling, to fence grappling, to groundwork, to, you know, uh, pinning positions, to striking, to uh, striking on the ground. Like these phases of MMA are fine in and of themselves, having skill sets there. But your ability to maneuver between those skill sets in an efficient manner to me shows a big, big opportunity for your trajectory in MMA. You look at Demetrius Johnson, you look at Henry Cejudo, two guys that were able to meld those things together just fluidly, really beautifully fluidly. Dom Cruz, another one, right? So what I took from Lupe Godinez's is, is, is performance yesterday is the meta of her game is really, really good. The transitionary phases between her game are really, really good. Are there things that she needs to brush up on? Yes, absolutely. Is there room for her to grow? Absolutely. But her ability to transition between the phases was something that I absolutely noticed and I absolutely was impressed by. So absolutely something to some, somebody to, 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 to keep an eye on for sure. And somebody that we saw last year in her rookie year that wants to be active, that wants to be out there and is going to get opportunities to continue to show that growth. Somebody asked her, I believe, in her post-white media scrum about like, will you take a little vacation after this? And she kind of did the like, what the hell is a vacation? Because she wants to be in there. She fought four times last year in a rookie year, tried to get a fifth, is back here early this year, second quarter, but early second quarter of, of the year, getting her first fight. We'll see a lot of her. She looks terrific. She is officially three and two, should probably be four and one in the UFC. I think she'd be Jessica or Jessica Pen Jessica Penang, not Jessica. And then the loss is going up in, in weight. And she was competitive in that fight. So definitely somebody that that we will continue to talk about and, and keep tabs on going forward. She will make an appearance in Fighters to Watch probably next time out. She could have been the person this time. Probably should have been Melissa Gatto let me down. Got beat by by Tracy Cortez. But before we get you out of here, before I let you go, tell people so that I don't have to sing your praises and make you uncomfortable, where they can follow you, what you've got on tap, what you've got coming, and then I'll sing your praises afterwards. Ah, well, before we do that, can we just talk a little bit? I've got the time, don't worry. Can we talk a little bit about Trinaldo and Danny Roberts? Absolutely. We talked about it. You and I talked about it during the fight. We did. Just dreadful fight IQ. Yeah, just just talk to me a little bit about that. Like we've talked just now, we've literally just talked about Lupe Godinez, right? right? And how she her ability to to transition between the phases is is really 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 good. Why does Francesco Ronaldo <laughs> not have that? Being a forty three year old man and having more fights than I've had hot dinners. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start this by saying it absolutely should be a speaker's corner. 
at some point, Fight IQ. I don't know if I'm going to invite myself on the show, but you and Sean should should definitely talk about it. Um, I think it is one of the pieces of this sport that is going to be or continue to be a deciding factor going forward because we saw it like he had Danny Roberts dead to rights three, four times where Danny Roberts's brain is doing the short circuit thing where it's, it's trying to tell him to walk and his legs just aren't answering. And each time Francisco Trinaldo, and we see it lots. It's not just a Trinaldo thing, right? We see it all the time. And Twitter is a light the minute it happens. Got him hurt, go into the clinch. I, I don't know if it's a base martial art thing, if it's a base fundamental thing of, well, grappling is my strong suit and I can put him on the ground and finish him. I don't know if it's a lack of recognition because there, there were a couple of fights and I can't remember it offhand right now, um, very recently where it seemed like a lack of recognition where, where the, the person didn't recognize they had their opponent hurt and decided to grapple. And so again, I don't know what the actual answer is of, of why this happens, because as you said, he is 43 years old, same as me. He has had a tremendous number of fights. That was his 25th fight in the UFC. And yet when he has Danny Roberts, Hurt and Danny Roberts is a guy that we've seen hurt and and sent out of there a couple of times now. I don't know why it happens, but I I do believe that the people that level up their fight IQ and display fight IQ will continue to be the people that rise to the top going forward. Because you can't just you can't give away moments like that. You can't make those mistakes. And maybe you get away with it if you're Francisco. And clearly, Francisco Trinaldo gets away with it on Saturday night against Danny Roberts. But there's going to be innumerable examples going forward of people not getting away with it and paying a price for not recognizing the right decision-making here. Because that's that, to me, is what it is. It's just poor decision-making. Yeah, your man's fight IQ is trash. I don't know what to tell you. It's... Uh... It's just rough. Like, I, I agree. Look, I think there's a very valid point. If you if you hurt a fighter and they put a, a great game face on and you don't know that they're hurt, fine. Fine. I home, Like, what? there's absolutely nothing you can do. Fair play to you. Just go back to the wheel and, and fight the fight you're fighting. No problems. But, and again, this is no disrespect to Danny Roberts whatsoever, but Danny Roberts does not hide when he is hurt. There is something that happens to his body that's clearly biological and out of his control that his, his body just begins to disobey his brain. There's no other explanation for that than you've been clipped. You're in a fist fight with a 43-year-old fire hydrant. I, I, it, it just boggles my mind as to why Trinaldo then is like, I think front headlock is a good idea. Like, What the fuck are you talking about? I said this to you, and maybe I tweeted it, I can't remember, is that there is, it, it takes a long time in comparison to landing a decisive blow when your fighter is already hurt. It takes a long time to take that person down, put them in a pin position, or just jump on a submission and then actually finish that submission. It takes a long time. And you know what the difference is happening in that time? Recovery. 
So for Francisco Ronaldo, just just get him out of there, please, please. And in answer to your first question, sorry, I will now I will now leave you for the day. You can find me on Severe MMA. I have uh, a podcast with Sean Sheehan called The Speaker's Corner. Uh, that is on Patreon. Uh, go sign up, severemma.com forward slash pints, um, which probably is the best URL ever, right? But Hands anyway, down. Yeah. Um, I also have a podcast on Severe MMA called The One Man Booth. That is a new podcast. I am breaking down fights and doing my best to analyze uh, how fights will go. Although I was horrendously wrong with Rose Namajunas, Carla Esparza. I have a preview show that I joined that is hosted by the great and powerful Mr. Ian O'Neill. I do that generally every Thursday. And you can find some articles that I write on Sphere Mate also. Um, I, oh yeah, I should probably tweet my social media out, right? Uh, my, my Twitter account is uh, at BTJ underscore Harry Powell. Uh, you can follow me there for a variety of MMA related things. Uh, Mr. Kite, as always, it's a fucking pleasure. I'm really honored to do this. Thank you so much. So severe MMA forward slash pints is absolutely the best URL ever. You should all go, you should all go check it out. You should all go and support the lads. I'm not saying it strictly because they have me on the show and they, they let me ramble and seem to think I know what I'm talking about and things like that. I truly believe that the work that is being done by, by Sean and Ian and Graham and Andy and Denny and Harry, the whole lot is amongst the best in the sport. They cover it from every angle. They cover regional MMA over in Europe, especially with, with an eye, obviously, on the Irish scene. It is phenomenal. These are the boys that, that helped you get to know Conor McGregor. And they're still out here crushing it every week without fail. So go and support. I'll just add on to that, actually. Firstly, we'll add Quilcher onto that list too. He's doing great work in the Irish. I just wasn't going to try to pronounce his name. That's fine. I don't don't blame you. But I will say one thing. And this is uh, uh, to speak to your longevity as it is also to, to Sean's, right? You have to understand that Sean and Graham were grinding in that Irish MMA scene way before Conor McGregor came. Correct. Did they have the platform or the notoriety? No, they did not. Conor definitely helped them with that. And Sean and Graham will be the first to tell you that being on that wave helped them. But you'll also understand, because Sean and Graham will tell you, if Conor McGregor never happened, they'd still be out here. They'd still be grinding and they'd still be doing it the right way. And I think that's something that personally for me, I take uh, huge pride in for being a part of Sri May. Right? I had no part whatsoever in the Conor McGregor rise. I was merely just a fan at that point, right? I was brought in um, through the good graces of, of Mr. Ian O'Neill and Mr. Sean Sheehan. And I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to, to work under such a prestigious name and, and such prestigious guys like those. But to also point to yourself, you know, you were writing about MMA way before the UFC gave a fuck about who you were way before anyone on Twitter cared about who you were way before anyone cared about writing in MMA, frankly. Right. And you were doing it because it was important to you to do it the right way. If anyone hasn't listened, uh, go to Patreon. And even if you just sign up for one month to listen to this podcast between Sean and Spencer talking about MMA media and the way to do it right, just go and fucking give an hour of your time to that podcast. Cause it really, really is worth it. Um, I'm not going to let you talk anymore. I'm going to fucking close this podcast. You're a fucking legend and you need to remember that. Thank you so much for this.
I appreciate you, my friend. I appreciate everybody for listening. I appreciate everybody for checking out my content, Harry's content, as he said, at BJJ underscore Harry Powell. Go follow all the severe lads. Check it all out. Enjoy it. We will be back next Sunday with another edition of the next two takeaways. We'll be back tomorrow with the next fighter to watch because this, this carnival rolls on. We are on to the next event. It never stops. I never want it to stop. This is what we do. We love it. Be good to one another. Take care of yourselves. And we'll talk to you next week.